maybe you struggle to really believe that God loves you. Maybe you're like me and you know your sin. You know it so well. You know it better than anything in the world, really. And because you know it so well, maybe you doubt God's love for you like I do. And if you're in that camp, then our passage in Galatians chapter 4 is tailor-made just for you. So I hope you listen with attentive ears and the Spirit of God opens your eyes and your ears and your heart, your mind to truly hear and believe, really believe the gospel this morning. So let's pray one more time and ask God to do that. Father, come by the power of your Holy Spirit now and open our eyes to see Jesus. God, we know our sin. God, we know it so well. Would that we knew the gospel better. Would that for every look at our sin, we would take ten looks at Christ, as one of the Puritans said. Help us to look at Jesus again today and to truly believe that you love us, to truly believe this morning that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Help us today for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you heard the news story this last week of the 15-year-old Florida boy who went to church last month seeking someone to adopt him. His parents were dead. He was being shuffled through the foster system, and he just wanted to be loved and to belong to a family. His name is Davian Only. And the only thing that Davian Only wants is to be loved. He said this, I'll take anyone, anyone who will love me. Fortunately, Davian's story has made national headlines and he is received over 10,000 responses. So it looks like the story is going to end well. I think the whole reason that the story made headlines and resonated with so many people is because Davian's cry to belong to a family and to be loved unconditionally is the cry of every human heart. We all want to belong And we all want to be loved. Not only is this true of every human being, but how much more true is it of us, disciples, Christians, children of God, as it it relates to our relationship with God? Don't we want to be loved unconditionally by God as sons and daughters? That's the gospel. That's the good news is that we are loved unconditionally, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what we do. And it's right there in verses 6 through 7. So look, we'll kind of jump ahead because it's so good. In verses 6 and 7, hear the word of the Lord. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
for those of us, for those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness, for your right standing with a holy God. For those of you who are Christians, you are sons and daughters of God. You are not just redeemed from your sins. You are received as sons. See, too many many of us have a very limited view of the gospel. We affirm that we are redeemed from sin. We affirm that we believe that, but so many of us struggle to believe that we are actually received as sons That God not only redeems us and buys us out of the slavery of sin, but he welcomes us into his family with open arms. The problem is that we doubt this. We doubt that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. And when we do that, when we doubt his love, we are functionally acting like orphans. We functionally act like orphans who have no father when we disbelieve the gospel like this. And when we start this heart drift back to the orphanage, we lose sight of Jesus. We become functional orphans again. Russell Moore explains the internal pull of our hearts to go back to the orphanage. In his book, Adopted for Life, where he describes adopting his two boys from Russia. He says, When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun. They'd never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Suddenly, it wasn't a stranger asking, are they brothers? They seemed to be asking it, non-verbally but emphatically about themselves. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I see myself there. 
The trauma of leaving the orphanage was unexpected to me because I knew how much better these boys' life would be, soon be. I thought they knew too, but they had no idea. They couldn't conceive of anything other than the status quo. My whispering to my boys, you won't miss that orphanage, is only a shadow of something I should have known already. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, tells us that we too are unable to grasp what's waiting for us and how glorious it really is. It's hard for us to long for an inheritance to come, a harmonious Christ-ruled universe when we've never seen anything like it. I do want to see the orphanage again. More importantly, I want to leave it again. Maybe Benjamin and Timothy and I will take a picture together in front of it before we leave to hang on our wall at home. I want to look in the back seat and see no hands reaching backward. I want to see two young men, maybe with sunglasses on, looking forward, smiling into the sunshine ahead of them. I can only pray that I'll do the same as I see my own orphanage in the rearview mirror. We all have a tendency to doubt God's love, to not truly believe that we are sons and daughters. And in those moments, we functionally start acting like orphans. And that's why our big idea today is this. Don't go back to the orphanage. Christian, don't go back to the orphanage. Russell Moore's sons wanted to go back to the orphanage. They just couldn't grasp the amazing truth that they were adopted, that they had a family, a mom and a dad. They could not even begin to understand how incredibly freeing and wonderful their new life would be. And this is exactly what was happening in the Galatian churches that Paul is writing to. They were being told by a group of false teachers called Judaizers that they had to work perform in order to earn God's love and keep his love. They were being told that they would have to come back under the Mosaic law in order to gain and maintain God's favor and love. They were being told that they had to go back to the orphanage of the law. But Paul writes to remind them that they are now sons of God. Look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, let me clarify one thing before we move on. When I talk about being sons of God, I'm using the imagery that Paul is using. Paul is not anti-women. He's not anti-daughter. He's describing life as it was in, ancient, in the ancient Near East and life as it was in Roman culture in his day. The sons received the inheritance. That's just how it worked. So when I say to you, and when Paul says to you, both male and females, we say, you are sons we are both speaking to males and females. Paul's point is that we are all sons 
And that means we are all heirs according to the promise given to Abraham, Galatians 3.29. And therefore, we all get the inheritance. The same thing happens when the church is called the bride of Christ, and yet it is made up of men. Okay, So ladies, you have to just get, deal with being called sons, and men, you have to deal with being called the bride of Christ. Okay, So save your politically correct emails. Paul continues the imagery of the son and the guardian that he started at the end of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. In Greek culture, a son was the heir of his father's fortunes and the inheritance was his. But because the son was a child, and even though he technically owned everything, he didn't actually own it yet. A slave would watch over the young child, watch over the boy, until the time set by his father, and then he would say, now the inheritance is yours. Then he would receive the inheritance. So in one sense, that boy would be no different than a slave. He lived in the house, but he didn't own everything yet. So he was no different than the slave that watched over him. Paul is saying that we were all like children before we trusted in Christ. We were like slaves. We were enslaved, he says, to the elementary principles of the world. For Jews, this meant trying to keep God's law in order to earn his favor. That's what they thought they had to do. For Gentiles, as we'll see in verse 8 in a moment, it was worshiping all the idols and gods of this world. Both Jews and Gentiles were enslaved to many different things, just like we all are. Enslaved to the idols that, as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. We can just pump out anything and we will worship it. Jews and Gentiles both worshipped anything they could in the world to try to fill that void in their heart to give them joy and peace. But then Paul says something happened. Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God in his sovereignty knew exactly when Jesus would come as the God-man. The Trinity, the triune God that Christians worship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, eternally existing in three persons, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, covenanted together in eternity past to save sinners and rebels like you and me and to adopt them into his family. God came up with the gospel in eternity past. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption, that the Lamb of God, as Scripture says, was slain before the foundation of the world. So Jesus came to earth at just the right time that God had determined. In real time, he was born of Mary, his mother. And he was fully God and fully man with those two natures united in one person. We looked at that earlier this year in our series on the Trinity. Jesus was born into a Jewish family who observed God's law. They observed the Mosaic law. He was born under the law that he might redeem those who were under the law. Quick word here about the word redeemed. It was used of slaves when they were bought out of the slave market. A slave's freedom could be purchased by someone. 
And when he was, the word that they used was redeemed. Ex agorazo. It's Pastor Greg's favorite word, by the way, Greek word. To be bought out of slavery. Someone purchased you and pulled you out of slavery and said, now you belong to me. That's what Jesus came to do. To redeem us. To buy us back out of slavery to sin. Slavery to death. Slavery to the elementary principles of this world. And he came also to adopt us as sons. That's the so that of verse 5. See the so that in verse 5? You need to highlight that. You need to underline it. I don't care if you're a, I don't write in my Bible kind of person. You need to be a, I write in, the kind, in my Bible kind of person for those two words. Because what do they say in verse 5? Jesus redeemed us. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. He didn't just come to redeem you and leave you alone. Because that would not be good news. Is it good news to have your sins forgiven, but then God wants nothing to do with you? Is that good news? I forgive you. Welcome to heaven on earth, the new earth. Welcome to eternity. I never want to see you for the rest of eternity. Is that good news? He redeemed us out of our sins to receive us as sons and daughters. That means if you've turned from your sins and you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are a son of God and heir. The inheritance is yours. You are in God's family. He loves you, and therefore that means don't go back to the orphanage. You are adopted. The papers are signed. The inheritance is yours. God the Father loves you, Christian. But we go back to the orphanage, if you will, when we doubt God's love for us. And when we doubt our Father's love, it grieves his heart. It breaks his heart. As John Owen said, and you've heard me say many times, John Owen said, believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God or to think of God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And they think herein they do well. Don't we do that? We're afraid to think that God could love us unconditionally. Really, you'll forgive me? I can just come into your presence anytime, really? We're afraid to think that way. We think we do well when we picture God as angry at us and frustrated and disappointed and let down. We think, oh, I'm doing the right thing when I view him that way. John Owen says, no. He says, it is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. For eminently, the Father himself loves you. Resolve of that, that you may hold communion with him in it and be no more troubled about it. Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing of it. You functionally go back to the orphanage when you doubt his love. And when you doubt his love, in that moment, you are saying, I have no father. I have no home. I am an orphan. I am unloved. Nobody wants me. 
but the gospel is all about God adopting rebels and enemies into his family as sons that he dotes on and loves and rejoices over with singing as the prophet Zephaniah says. J.I. Packer said this, Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. The gospel can be summed up in those three words, adoption through propitiation. We are adopted through propitiation, through Jesus turning away God the Father's wrath, away from us and squarely onto him. Propitiation is Jesus absorbing the wrath of God like a sponge, every last drop, turning it away from us onto himself. Adoption through propitiation. That is the gospel. Packer also said this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Now think about this, because we value justification. We would agree with John Calvin that Christianity, the hinge that it swings on is justification. Justification is, is God declaring you not guilty in his eyes, giving you Jesus' righteousness so that you stand blameless in his eyes. Now, Packer says adoption, being brought into God's family as his sons and daughters and loved on, cherished and adored, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification, higher than being declared righteous by God. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have not peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea, conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater.
to be right with God the judge and say, your sins are forgiven. That's great. But something greater is that then the father says, come, you are my son. I love you. I care for you. That's why I said a few moments ago that it is not good news if God forgives our sins, brings us into eternity on the new earth in heaven, and wants nothing to do with us. That's not good news. Good news is that God says, I forgive you of everything that you've done. Now come into my arms, child. I love you. I care for you. I sing over you with joy because of my son, Jesus. That's why adoption is the highest blessing. I don't just want to be forgiven. I want to be loved by my heavenly father. But many of us, many of you, just like me, live like orphans. We live like we are not adopted sons and daughters of God. What did Jesus say in John 14? I will not leave you as orphans. And Jesus did not leave his disciples in one sense because God the Father sent the Holy Spirit, which Jesus talks about in John 14. And that's who Paul talks about here in Galatians. Look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent the Holy Spirit to reassure us that we are adopted sons of God so that we would cry out, Abba, Father. God sent the Holy Spirit to reassure us that we are sons because how often do we doubt that? Our hearts condemn us, First John 3 says. But God is greater than our hearts. It must have been on Paul's heart because he says the same thing in Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Abba, Father. These are intimate terms. Like when your child hops up in your lap and says, Daddy or Mommy, can I do this? Can I have that? F.F. Bruce commentator says this, Abba is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of his people. Abba, Father, is the voice of the Spirit of Jesus on the lips of his people. This is bare bones Christianity right here, calling on God as our Father. Christian, you are no longer a slave with no rights. You are a son, an heir And you can cry out, Father. And because you can cry out to God as your father, then that means don't go back to the orphanage. The Galatians were trying to return 
to the orphanage. Look at verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have, may have labored over you in vain. Before they heard and believed the gospel, the Galatian churches were slaves to the things of this world. They worshiped gods and idols. In a sense, they worshiped themselves. But they had come to know Jesus. Or better, Paul says, Jesus has come to know them. What Paul means by this is that the Christian life is not so much about knowing God or loving God, but being known and loved by God. The Christian life isn't so much about you knowing God, you loving God. It's about God knowing you and God loving you, the rotten, stinky sinner that you are. See, our affections and our emotions come and go. There's, there's ebb and flow, but not with God. We don't always love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We like to think we do, but we don't. But Jesus loves us with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength. And that makes all the difference in the world. So Paul is perplexed here. He says, how can you turn back again? You want to go back to the orphanage? He's perplexed. If the gospel is such good news, if the Galatians are adopted into God's family and God loves them with an everlasting love, he's saying, why do you want to be enslaved again? You've been set free. Jesus has fully obeyed the law for you. Why do you want to go back and try to keep it to earn God's favor? If they already have all of the love and acceptance, forgiveness that the gospel provides, Paul is asking them, why do you want to try and earn it? It's because they were being told by the Judaizers that they had to come back under the law to satisfy God. They were being told by the Judaizers that they had to keep and observe special days, months, and seasons. They had to keep the uh, festivals that Israel kept in order to be made right. And so Paul is saying, I wonder if I've labored in vain over you. He's perplexed that they want to give up their status as adopted sons so that they can be slaves and orphans once again. I think Paul would be perplexed about us too because we all often lose sight of the gospel and start acting like orphans. Let me ask you today, are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son? Do you functionally exist as an orphan in your day-to-day relationship with God? Or do you exist as a son? Here's what it looks like. And check the Vine email devo that will go out tomorrow because there will be a PDF on there where you can check off, am I acting like a son or am I acting like an orphan? But here's what it looks like. You function like an orphan when you worry And you doubt God's love and care for you. The son or daughter rests in their father's never-ending love for his child. 
Orphans worry. Orphans chew their fingernails. Orphans stay up at night and pull their hair out. Orphans turn and toss in the bed because they're not trusting their heavenly father. Sons and daughters rest at night because God is their father. You function like an orphan when your relationship with God is seen through the lens of success and failure. The son or daughter rests in the truth that they're covered in the righteousness of Jesus and that they're blameless in God's eyes. And when God looks at them, he sees someone who has fully obeyed the law because Jesus fully obeyed the law for us. But orphans focus on their failures, how much they fail God. And they despair and they want to quit and give up because all they know is sin. That's how some orphans work. Some orphans get prideful because they think they obey well. They think they're good. And they get prideful at how much they do for God. But sons and daughters rest in the imputed righteousness of Jesus that is given to them by God. The orphan is defensive when accused of error or weakness. The son or daughter is open to criticism because you rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Orphans can't handle criticism. They don't like it when people talk about, I think you need to work in this area. I think you need some help here. Orphans can't handle criticism. Sons and daughters have God's favor so they don't fear what people think of them, even if the criticism is true. The orphan is a competent analyst of other people's sins and failures and weaknesses. The orphan is a competent analyst. Oh, they're able to look at people and point out everyone's sins, everyone's failures, everyone's weaknesses. By contrast, the son or daughter is able to freely confess their, their faults to one another because they know that no matter what, they're loved by their heavenly father. Orphans focus on other people's sins. Sons freely confess their sin because they have nothing to hide. They're resting in their relationship with their father. Orphans, on the other hand, will go around and nitpick everyone. Are you acting like a scared orphan or a secure son today? Do you functionally exist as an orphan or a son. I mean, in your day-to-day relationship with God, do you act like an orphan? Or do you rest in your sonship? Do you really believe that you are a son or daughter of the king? Do you really believe that God stands with arms wide open, always allowing you free access into his presence? Or do you view God as a cranky father with arms crossed and a frown on his face? When you wake up in the morning and you go to pray, do you think God's disappointed in you, let down? Do you feel shame and condemnation? And you're functioning as an orphan. A son just comes into his presence says, Father, Daddy, if you will. One lady describes the glory of the gospel this way, the glory of sonship. One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, 
and I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that that event and others like it had on me. Not believing God concerning his delight in me and the gracious nature of my relationship with him, this memory returned to me. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my heavenly father was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. I told our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and said that I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, my counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. It is the fact that my father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to really desire a life disciplined to seek him and find him and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. What a joy to know that our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. Are you a Christian today? Have you turned from your sins and you're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation? If that's you, God's not disgusted with you. He's not angry at you anymore because Jesus has taken care of everything. Don't go back to the orphanage. Your father loves and welcomes you. Don't try to get the shirts hung up right, your Father loves and welcomes you forever. And He does it only because of His Son. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful hope is captured here on a page with ink. So amazing. Because we know our sin, God. You know it even better than us. We know our sins, so we struggle to receive your love. And the crazy thing is that you know our sin better than we do, and yet you still want to love us. That's mind-boggling. Only you could come up with the gospel. And the only reason 
you love us the way you do is because of your son, because his perfect life, his perfect death, his resurrection is credited to us so that when you see us, God, you don't see all the sin and baggage that we see. You see the perfect life of your son. You see us. And when you see us, you see Jesus. You actually love us just like you love your own son. And that is incredible. May it go further and deeper into our hearts for our joy, but more importantly, for your glory. We ask by the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.